I'm Jim Frawley, and this is Bellwether. Welcome to Bellwether. Thank you for joining us today. I am super excited. I've been talking about this podcast for a long time. If you know me, I've been talking about this podcast for a long time. Uh, And I mentioned it last week. Uh, We are thrilled to have uh, Richard Dean, lead French horn player of the New York Philharmonic, joining us today. We're going to talk about a lot. Every time I talk to Mr. Dean, uh, the conversations get long, they get deep, they get heavy, uh, and uh, they are always an absolute delight. The reason I really wanted Richard on is Richard has a, a phenomenal philosophy uh, on life in general, of course, but when you think about uh, performing under pressure and mindfulness under pressure, you will be very hard-pressed to find someone in a more unique situation than the lead French horn player of the New York Philharmonic. The visibility is huge. Uh, the audience is is probably the most critiquing audience that's out there. If you think about anybody you know who likes classical music, uh, everything has to be pristine. Uh, and so on, on a stage like New York, there's so many reasons why you just say, you know what, if I want to learn from someone, I kind of that's the type of person that I want to learn from. And so I'm very excited to introduce Richard Dean. We have plenty to talk about today. Uh, Richard, welcome to Bellwether. Thank you for being here. Jim, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for a long time and uh, can't wait to uh, talk to you about lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. We have so much stuff. Uh, So much, so much stuff. So tell us a little bit about you uh, because, look, classical music, Philharmonic, I love doing it. I love listening to classical music. I love all that stuff. Uh, But not everybody does. Right. Right. So it's... uh, Tell us a little bit about what got you to where you are, who you are, and uh, and then we could talk about the really meaty okay. uh, pressure, angry pressure stuff. <laughs> exactly. That'd be great. Absolutely. Um, well, as uh, Jim said, uh, my name is Richard Dean. Uh, basically, I am a country boy, I'm born in the um, middle of Kentucky, um, and I grew up in a family of teachers. My mom and dad were both teachers. My grandma and grandpa were teachers. Their parents were teachers. So I grew up, you know, like I said, in the country, but uh, I was surrounded by people who loved learning and um, taught uh, very seriously at the university level. I was inundated from day one with the importance of preparing yourself to learn and getting close to the idea of um, uh, achievement. So uh, I started off uh, with the French horn when I was in the fifth grade. Um, I, I showed up to the fifth grade band organizational meeting and uh, we had a brand new teacher. Um, he uh, lined us all up and by the time my name was called, um, walked up there and he said, uh, what would you like to play, Mr. Dean? And I said, well, uh, maybe the saxophone, because it was the only instrument that I'd ever heard of besides piano. And it's, it's pretty cool. 
And it's very cool. Yeah. And I'll never forget the moment he looked at me in the eye and he said, I'm sorry, I just gave the last saxophone away. Do you know any other instruments? What might you like to play? And I had absolutely no idea. I maybe heard of the violin. Of course, I knew piano. I'd been playing piano for a little while. And I just said, I, have, I, I don't know. Well, what, what do you suggest? And he looked at me and he goes, well, how about you show me your teeth? <laughs> and I was like, what is it's an going odd on? question. What is going on here? <laughs> so I, you know, I, I was, I did what I was told. I was in the fifth grade, you know, so I was used to that. And I gave, um, I gave him a big smile and he goes, okay, you're going to play the French horn. And I walked away. And the next day I showed up for band and uh, he had a, he had a student model French horn there for me to play. And I, I dove right in and had no idea what I was doing for a couple of years until my parents, uh, through their university connections, found a really great teacher for me who started to show me what it was all about and how to play well. And all of a sudden, things started clicking a little bit. This is about seventh grade. And um, so, you know, my parents' sort of idea of the value of teaching, they had found this guy for me. He was awesome. Um, within a year, I was I was playing some pretty serious stuff. Uh, auditioned for the youth orchestra. And at that point, one of those seminal moments in your life when you show up and you have no idea what is going, uh, what's going to happen. You know, I, I auditioned for the youth orchestra. I didn't really even know what an orchestra was. I'd been playing in band. My parents had said, you know, you need to do this. So I did. And I went in and, and I, I showed up for the first rehearsal. And from the very first moment that the orchestra started playing, it was so incredibly emotional and engaging. I really, I couldn't really put it into words, but I just knew that it was the coolest thing and that I was getting to participate in that. So that kind of, um, that kind of opened up a, a, a door of this is something that I really want to get good at and I really want to get involved with. So that progressed all the way through high school. I kept, you know, kept working really hard, studying, um, and it came time to decide where I wanted to go to college, and um, my parents, again, had heard through their colleagues at the university that a job as a professional French horn player was extremely difficult to get, and they yep. would support me continuing to play my French horn, but they did not want me to, to major in it in college. I don't imagine there are a ton of vacancies in the French horn employment if in the whole country, um, in the orchestra world, there's probably, I'm going to say, between 120 and 150 in the whole country that you can make a nice living wage. Now, I'm staring at you while you're telling me this, and I'm looking at your teeth. Yeah. <laughs> Why are your teeth perfect for the French horn? You know, through the magic of Facebook, I've been trying to find my fifth grade band director ever since 1970. Well, since I met him in 1972. Of course, Facebook wasn't around then. Ever since Facebook came along, that was my first search. Yeah. Haven't found him yet. Okay. So, Steve Baxter, if you're out there, please contact me. <laughs> I really want to know what it is about my teeth. Yeah. I have no, no idea. Because if there's only 150 jobs, you could yeah. pretty much find out just by looking at a kid's teeth if Logically, that's a future that or not. Case. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, okay. right. Good. Yeah. I, I just I always wonder if that was in Band Director 101, you know, um, look for two large uh, incisors and a slight overbite. I mean, I, I, have no, <laughs> I have no idea. But here's the bizarre thing about that. The other kid in that line who he said, show me your teeth, was my best friend. He also 
was assigned the French horn, and he also became a professional French horn player. Wow. Something in the water there, I guess. Or the teeth. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Wow. How about that? Isn't that crazy? So anyway, so I, I, went, off to, uh, I went off to college, and um, I was studying electrical engineering with a minor in French horn, essentially, and uh, realized that I loved playing much more than I loved calculus and circuit theory. Back then, it was, wasn't a shocking. lot of digital. Yeah, shocking, right. And playing was still... It hadn't become, it hadn't become a job yet at all. It was still just pure fun, and I was working hard, getting better quickly. Um, it was just an absolute blast at, at that time. So, I um, went to a couple of summer music festivals uh, during my freshman and sophomore summers, and realized through hearing especially one amazing French horn player named John Cermonaro, who ironically, whose chair I'm sitting in now at the Philharmonic, I heard him play and I realized it's strange. As a young person, it wasn't logical. It was just I heard him play and I knew that is what I want to do with my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I went back to my electrical engineering school and I told my French horn teacher, who was at the same school, of course, um, I wanted to wanted to change uh, majors. And he said, well, ironically, I'm leaving school next year to go to New York to become a freelancer. So this might be a good opportunity for you to switch schools hmm. to a more high-powered school. And um, That's gonna... not quite the change I was looking for, Professor, well, but... <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I, uh, I, I, but, you know, it, uh, you it was a hard decision to make. Um, my parents really wanted me to finish up the, the electrical engineering degree, but I, um, I, I knew in my heart what the right thing was, and so I made the change, and I went to the University of Cincinnati for a couple of years after that, finished up my bachelor's, and that was at the point where it was a great decision, and I met people who started to show me what the whole field was about what being a horn player really was. Now, mm -hmm. still, still, it was pure fun. Yeah. It was no job. It was um, just learning and just getting to be. There was a lot of competition too. Uh, there were twenty of us. We we all vied for the best positions, and this is where I started to learn, really understand the value of working harder than anybody else. Mm -hmm. I never. Along the way, I, I, I never considered myself uh, either, you know, subjectively or objectively as one of the better horn players. But my goal, my, my, uh, my path, and I saw myself in was to be the hardest worker of anybody in my peer group. And so that's, that's how I approached uh, my, my life at this new school, working my butt off. Uh, now, when you go, I'm thinking back to when I was 18, 19, 20 years old. Mm -hmm. Right. To make a change like that yeah. takes massive amounts of courage. And it's a risk because you're sitting there and you see people all the time say, oh, I'm going to go study acting. Yeah. And you look and you say, this person's going to fail as an actor. Right. I mean, like everybody else can see it. And so I, you know, I always wanted to do different things and I just never did it because I was afraid of failure or whatever it is. Of course. How do you sit there and say, you know what, this is this is my love or is this just something that, you know? Um, you know, how, how does someone determine to say, you know what, this is the right step for me, or do you just go and you just have to work your ass off? Yeah. 
It's 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 definitely. Um, I thank goodness that I was I had the support of the people who who love me, but I was also. Uh, I'll just call it what it is. I was pretty stupid. I didn't realize <laughs> I didn't realize how hard it was going to be to get. And I'm really glad that I didn't realize it. I mean, people would say you're this is a really hard career. There are no jobs out there. What do you how, what's your plan? And I just would say, well, I don't really have a plan other than I'm going to work as hard as I can and we're going to let the chips fall where they may. We're going to see when the door opens. This is something I was told from an early age. When a door opens, you've got to be ready to step through it. If you're not ready, that door will close very, very quickly. So sure enough, when I got to Cincinnati, um, doors started to open literally on day one. I was I was in the practice room, and this, uh, this guy knocks on my door and comes in and introduced himself. happened to be a member of the Cincinnati Symphony. He says... Hey, my name's Charlie. I'm going to play some duets. I heard you're playing outside. I like what you're doing. And I was like, oh, my God, you're kidding me. This is the first day I'm there. We wow. played duets. We're still friends. And through being ready to go when I showed up, just that one day opened up and just a, a huge path of relationship uh, over the last 35 years. And I feel like it goes back to what you had said before with your family, mm-hmm. Co- combining the idea of learning plus achievement. Exactly. And I, I feel like being open to learning and open to these experiences and in, in due course, I guess, open to failure. Exactly. Is, which is what learning really is. Exactly. Would then open up doors like that, just taking one step in that direction. Exactly. Well, you know, the French horn, it, they always say, Everybody says it's the hardest instrument, which is not necessarily true. It's the hardest in a certain way. At, at, at our level, every instrument is equally hard. But it's, it's hard in the sense that you're slapped in the face with failure every single time you put it up to your face. It's not like I'm going to go home today after we're done uh, and, and practice because I've got a big week next week at the Phil, and um, I'm going to practice for a couple hours. I'm not going to – I don't have any expectations of putting the horn up to my face and going, wow, I am – I've really got this going today. <laughs> that happens maybe once a year. Now, how, so how do you enjoy your job then? If every time you're putting this thing up to yeah. your lips, you're getting smacked in the face with failure. That is a really good question. <laughs> um, no, the, because because what – it's – that's sort of an over-exaggeration. It, it, it is, I am being smacked in the face every single day. Every single minute, I'm being smacked in the face with this, well, you've got to figure out how to do this again after I've been playing for 47 years. Um, it's the, what the end result is for us in terms of our own personal experience and our what we're able to, to provide for people who listen is so great. And I, I don't, for people out there who don't like classical music, I'm going to put a big plug in later to go and give us a try. Yes. But this is an ultimate emotional, intellectual, spiritual experience. And to be a part of that is, uh, I, I was telling somebody the other day, I have never once not wanted to go to work, nor ever once regretted my decision to be involved with what I'm involved with, even though 
I get punched in the face on a daily basis <laughs> with um, the reality of what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's now a- so. Let's let's transition a bit to to your level, right? So you now get punched in the face just from practicing, right? Right, which is painful, <laughs> right? But when you are on stage at the New York Philharmonic, right. there really isn't you know a bigger stage in the world, right? Or you know it's it's up there, it's the top tier. It is. So the pressure to perform under that. Is difficult. So that's a little more than just being slapped in the face. Right. How so for someone going through, it's time to execute. Right. You could practice all you want. That's one aspect of it. But sure. now we have to execute. Right. Talk me through your your process for that. Well, you know, the real problem is it's time. Because and this we can think about this in both a uh, a kind of a philosophical kind of way and also a very practical kind of way. And let's, maybe we can talk about both. Um, practically, what happens when we play music is that uh, on the stage at the Phil, there, once the flow of the piece starts, essentially you have to put your notes on that page, which sometimes can be very complex, very, um, very, very complicated series of. Um, of, uh, of phrases and notes that uh, are, are difficult to, c- to control on your instrument. You have to put those in exactly the right spot. That's kind of what we do. So if you're thinking this, this, hard, this hard passage is coming up and you know, you're going to have to implement it, and um, if you're thinking, as in most other things in life, I could put this off for a minute. I can put it off for 15 seconds. I can put it off till tomorrow, till I feel better. I can't even put it off for a millisecond. Yep. So the problem is not that we can't do it because we've practiced, you know, 20,000 hours at this point to 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 get the muscle memory and the mind memory to be able to implement these 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 uh, tricks. The problem is is that you have to do it in the moment, you have to do it right at the. There's not. It's literally a millisecond mm-hmm. between failure and success. So, how do you get to the point where you can do it in that exact moment? And that's where practicing comes in. You know, I I tell, and I'm not talking about practicing the horn. I'm talking about practicing mindfulness. Yeah. So, I think about it. Try to think about it in the simplest of terms. Because to be mindful is the exact opposite of using your mind to solve a problem. I, I've used my mind, like I said, for 20,000 hours to learn how to play the French horn. I've learned where to put my lips. I've learned where to put my tongue. I've learned how to breathe. I've learned how all the pieces go. I've used my mind to do that. What I need to do is gain access to the feeling of being in the moment. And I found through a lot of practice doing that, that I can be vastly more successful implementing the tricks that I need to implement if I can understand that feeling. And that's the best way to describe it is at this point in my, you know, I'm by no means an expert, but to me it's a, it's a feeling of being in a certain relationship with what's happening right now as opposed to 
um, thinking about once the words come in as a horn player, you're kind of you're you're kind of screwed. You've mm-hmm. you've got if you start thinking about what could happen, right? Or I really messed this passage up two years ago when we played it. You start thinking about either one of those. These inner saboteurs start talking. The and... Inner saboteurs, and in that moment, you, you can't. You have to be practiced in making the box that you're of the moment that you're in right now, not containing those ideas of past and future. So is this? Um, we all have an inner dialogue, exactly. Right, and so, but this is not necessarily embracing an inner dialogue. It's almost, whether you want to call it flow, whether you want to call it something else, it's something, some other intangible thing that you need to tap into. Right. We know the inner dialogue is going to be there because that's, if you want some empirical evidence, that's what the great philosophers of time, of all time have said. This is the human condition. This is the way that we are. We've got a, an ability to be present and we have an inner dialogue that is basically a construct of the mind. We we have to have the mind. The mind allows us to do what we need to do to interface with the world, whether it's, you know, to get to work or to um, to re- relate to a cookbook or whatever. We have to use, be able to use the mind as a tool. But this is, uh, this is uh, a little more of an idea of um, knowing that there is going to be an inner dialogue. Don't try to make it go away because it's not going to go away. Knowing that there is one, it's more about how to manage that inner dialogue rather than to squelch it. Yes. It's going to be there. I heard the most amazing thing on TV um, the other day uh, on a very unlikely place. Um, It was a uh, uh, show called uh, Chef's Table. Where this oh, I've seen that. That's a good show. Great show. Yeah. And I, I love it. I've seen every episode uh, at least uh, two or three times. This one was the, the Korean monk cook who was invited by Eric Repair to come to Le Bernadette and cook. And you know, I was fascinated by the food that she's cooking. And then you look and she says something just amazing uh, about three quarters of the way through the show. She says, to be enlightened means to be able to control going between presence and mind consciously. In other words, you know there's you're going to be you're going to have your you have we have to have our mind. We and we know somewhere in there is our ability to be present, although that oftentimes in the modern world gets completely covered up. So she said in a very just simple way, you have to be able to consciously be able to control going between one and the other. And I'm like, that is exactly what I experience when I'm sitting in that chair. If I'm successful, then I can look back and 99,000 out of 100, I have been able to um, access the, the feeling, the joy of being in the moment as the music flows along. And ironically, mind got me there. But flow and joy and the uh, the music itself is what sort of keeps you in the chair. It- so how do you practice this? Okay, so now you've got flow, right? And, and in terms of making it real, and I'm I'm gonna explore this time thing a little bit more because you've got your lead up, yes, right, is one part. 
Exactly. Where you've got your, okay, you're ready and you're going and blah, blah, blah. You've got execution point. Yes. And then you've also got, well, I screwed up. How do I get back on the horse? So there are three or, you know, I did a good job and how do I do it again? Whichever, you know. Right. but so now you've experienced presence versus mind, and you know what that feels like. I do. How does someone start to tap into that, and what do you do beyond just sitting in the chair because it has to be done outside of it? Exactly. Um, well, first thing we have to realize is, uh, at least from my from my experience, uh, that there is a dichotomy there. I remember, um, you know, when I when I first started reading about philosophy. Um, I think my first book I read when I was 13 or 14 was uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And uh, I had a friend in high school who recommended crazy books like that. And I would read these books and go, oh my gosh, that, that, I totally, that's so interesting. And yet, for years and years and years after that, I would read, um, you know, Zen and the Art of Archery, uh, motorcycle maintenance, uh, um, uh, dancing Wooly masters, all the books about the new physics, about reality uh, beyond mind, and I would, I still was not ready to really understand the dichotomy of how that works in a human being. So I just lumped it all together in, wow, this is really cool. I'm learning about um, the difference between mind and emotion. And I lumped it all together in in terms of thinking. There was a great book in classical music called um, The Classical Style by Charles Rosen. He ta- and he talks about, um, he talks about uh, Mozart, Beethoven, and Haydn and how they were able to use their mind to create works of art that are full of incredible emotional content, but only able to be put out there into the world because the structure of the way that they're put together is so um, understandable. So again, I, I read that book. It was related to the things that I uh, was, was very interested in at the time. And I sort of started to understand that there was, a, there was something beyond mind. But I didn't really, I didn't really, um, wasn't able to feel it in my own experience. It was all, as I said, all grouped together in, in, a, in a, a one category of mind. So um, long about, uh, when I was about 28, 29 years old, uh, I had uh, joined the Atlanta Symphony in a position that I, um, that I, uh, had, it was exactly where I wanted to be. I was third horn in the Atlanta Symphony. I was surrounded by people who were amazing musicians. We were recording 10 CDs a year. We were touring. I was making money. I bought a house. Everything was working exactly like I wanted it to. And then all of a sudden, and I'm very thankful for this in retrospect, um, but uh, those of you who've read... Um, Dan Harris's book, uh, 10% Happier, mm-hmm. will, uh, and perhaps you maybe have experienced something like this in your own life, um, I went out on stage to play a really difficult piece one night, I was just about 28 years old, and I had a an unbelievably 
awful experience of a huge panic attack for like two hours on stage. I basically, we played Mahler Third Symphony. I didn't play for the first hour and 15 minutes. I just sat there wondering what was going on. Wow. Finally, by the end of the sixth movement, I had, had the courage and the, I recovered enough to put the horn to my face. And, um, and so that was my wake-up call. I didn't know what had happened. I had no idea. I didn't even know that, that there was a possibility of such a thing as a panic attack. I mm -hmm. had no idea what that was. I, so I went from euphorically in my mind to absolutely, completely cut down to zero in the course of an hour. And uh, so the next two years, I was like, you know what? I'm, I was only two years into playing with the Atlanta Symphony. I'm like, I'm not going to lose. I'm not going to lose everything I've worked for. I'm going to figure out what this is and I'm going to fix it. Mm -hmm. So full frontal assault, started doing yoga, started meditating, started talking to people, started going to workshops. That was in 1990. And um, it took me... I still, that helped, and I got back on the horse, and uh, I, you know, I was, I met, fortunately, I, I met my, um, my wife in 1995, we got married in 1998, she, she's not a creature of the mind, um, I'm not saying she's not brilliant, she is, she's totally in the moment, so that really helped me along the path mm -hmm. there for mm -hmm. a while, but it wasn't until... I think it was sometime in 2008, so we're talking 18 years later, that I was in Target and I was on an end cap with my kids who were in the in the um, in the cart and we were just shopping and I looked on the end cap and there was this orange book there that I had heard about somewhere. I'd read read about it and it was a, the the Eckhart Tolle book, um, A New Earth, and I was like, I'm going to get that book. So I took it home and I opened it up and starts. He starts the book off with the words, you are not your mind. And all of a sudden, literally right there, it clicked for me. I so can, 18 years. 18 years I worked and worked, and I was still, I had built up the power of what I could do with my mind and the importance, and I was willing to put up with all of the pain engendered by that because the joy of what I could experience with the things that I created with my mind was, it was enough, enough crumbs to keep me going. But it took 18 years of that. And then finally, I don't know, it might be too, this might be too magnanimous, but the universe was ready for me to hear something that along the lines of you are not your mind. And like I said, all of a sudden it clicked and I read that book. And then I realized that there was more to it than what I could just create with my mind. And that's when, ironically, I started to be able to control my horn playing more. And then four years later, I was presented with the opportunity to come to New York, which I never in my wildest dreams I would have imagined that I would be able to play in an ensemble like this. Um, I fantasized about it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I hadn't... Uh, it, it was... Um, in my mind, it was still beyond my capabilities. I, there's no way that I could do it. And that's what I thought. And all of a sudden, the opportunity presented itself. And um, 
here was this door that was opening. And uh, it got even crazier after that because I was like, all right, I'm going to come to New York. I feel like four years into this, um, into knowing myself a lot better, I'm able to, to control this much better than I used to be able to. I'm feeling more comfortable on stage. I really feel like what I'm doing uh, in terms of my musical presentation is really getting out there because I'm a lot more centered. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I accepted an opportunity. We call it in the business uh, a sub. I accepted the opportunity to become a year-long sub in the Philharmonic because they needed a few players to come in. Uh, they needed an assistant principal, they needed an associate principal, and they needed a third horn, which are all what – um, for, for a horn player vernacular, it's, uh, those are all high positions. We're, we're special, specialists in the high notes in the, re, in the uh, repertoire, and the second and the fourth horn player are specialists in the low notes. So we all basically do the same job, the principal, assistant, associate, and third. So um, I got, a, got an opportunity, got an invitation to come as the third horn player uh, in the Philharmonic for the 2012-13 season. And even though I thought that was beyond my capabilities, I had an inkling, well, maybe I can do this. I'm going to just go for it. I'm getting old. You know, I want to give this a try. So I showed up, and um, we got an apartment, expensive apartment. We got Welcome to New York. Welcome to New York. <laughs> We got the boys in, um, we got my boys in elementary school right around the corner. Again, that was like, you know, we got the last seat in the fifth grade at mm -hmm. PS199. Mm -hmm. Had no idea that there was going to be so much about just living in New York. But anyway, we made the commitment to be here for a year. And first, the, literally the first weekend, I get a call from my boss and he says, he says, you're, you're not going to be the third horn player this year in the Philharmonic. And I was like, what? <laughs> I just signed a lease for 12 months. Right. And my boys are in school. And my house is rented in Atlanta. What am I going to do? And he says, no, no, no. I, I didn't mean you don't have a job. He says, you're going to – I don't need you to play third. I need you to play associate principal. And that basically meant – uh, a factor of 10 more difficult than what I was expecting. So mm -hmm. I was expecting to, to do one thing, barely able to hold on to the idea in my mind that I was going to be able to do it. And then all of a sudden I'm presented with the idea that, no, it's not that. It's going to be 10 times harder. And I kind of waffled a little bit. And I'm so glad he did this, but it was so hard at the time. He goes, look, i got to take care of this right now. This isn't really about you. This is about <laughs> me taking care of this. You got 15 seconds. I'll give seconds you the courtesy to, of 15 seconds. I'll give right? you the courtesy of 15 seconds to decide. So I was just like, ah. And I thought to myself, all right, I can't disappoint him on my first day. Yep. So I'm just going to dive right in. What's the worst that can happen? I'll fall flat on my face. I'll go back to Atlanta and I'll re continue my life. So that turned out to be. A, a, a really great opportunity um, to continue the path of of trying to figure out the balance of being a human being. I don't want to put it into like too grandiose terms, but essentially, you know, when we're done with this life, no one's going to care that I played in the New York Philharmonic. A couple people, a couple people might remember a couple of things. That I'll care. You'll care. I'll care. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what? 
what's it, it boils down to give, being given the opportunity, forced into the opportunity of trying to figure out what is this life all about. Well, so so let's let's explore this a little bit. So when I think of it in terms of a timeline, eighteen years. Yes. After panic. Right. Right. So you you've already been working for a bunch of years, right? And going back to fifth grade, right? So now you've got let's say eighteen years of learning an instrument, and you get up to a level, and then panic attack, and now eighteen years of uh, exploring, exactly. right? But not really knowing what you're exploring. Right, maybe like trying certain things, meditating, doing eighteen years, that's, two decades is a long a great time. Way to describe it, that's what was happening for a long time. And try, and I guess it's learning, not knowing that you're learning, right? But right. you're going along on the step. Read the book, door opens, and now it's just a flood right. of you know what? Yeah, New York opportunity. Hell yes, I want yes. this. Okay, well you know what? We're going to take it. We're going to multiply it by ten. Okay, <laughs> well let's let's jump on this wagon, right? Let's jump exactly. on the horse. And now you're here for. Six, seven years, right. right? And factor, factor, factor up. Well, you know, it, it. I didn't even say this part, and I know it sounds like a broken record at this point, but a couple of years ago, it got amped up by another factor of 10 when my boss retired, and now I'm sitting in the lead chair. Exactly. And, and now it's 10 times more than it was 10 times before. Do your so, calculus. Thinking <laughs> exactly back. Exactly. <laughs> 10 times 10 is 100. So uh, it's... Um, now, now at age, I'm 57 now, now, uh, it's gotten really real. And, um, I am so grateful for this opportunity now, uh, because every day is, um, there, (laughs) this is a motto for New York. There's no screwing around. Yeah. You can't screw around here. It's, but. So if you wallow in the idea of oh man this this is just too hard I I what what I'm going to have to do in order to accomplish what has been put in front of me is just too much. Fortunately, like I said before, the result, the resultant joy of what uh, we experience as musicians uh, keeps you've got a little bit of that out in front of you in the sense that yes, short term, if I work hard this week, I'm going to get to participate at a very high level with this uh with this unbelievable product but long term the idea of understanding who i am and what what is behind what is behind the veil of all these words that i've had uh uh in in my entire life it's it's sort of like uh, i feel it's like a rediscovery of myself that has been lost in all of that, like you said, 18 years of working, 18 years of discovery, all of that, all of those words, all of that knowledge now has set me up to be able to be truly happy and be truly um, at peace with myself. And that's, that's my goal now, even more than wanting to be the best horn player in the world, which I don't know that I will ever achieve that, but I do feel like that I can achieve um, uh, the other goal, which is understanding, knowing who I am. So do you think, so happiness then, everybody's looking for happiness, of course. right? But they need to define what happiness really is. Exactly. Whether it's 
success or whether it's satisfaction or whatever. Um, I think it was Oscar Wilde who said the meaning of life is self-discovery and learning about you. Or maybe it was Thoreau. I don't know. Um, is that So now do you think 18 years of I'm kind of going through the motions, don't really know what I'm doing. But now that you have an awareness of it and you have a joy of self-discovery and learning about yourself and enjoying the idea of exploring new whether it's through meditation, exploring why am I thinking this, why am I acting this way, and it almost becomes uh, a game in and of itself to say learning about me is what brings self-satisfaction and peace and happiness. Has that really changed the way that you approach music and, and the way that you, you operate? Yeah, it, it 100%. Um, I'm still, I feel like I'm an infant, Um Every morning when I wake up, uh, it I am confronted with all of the difficulties of what I have to do during the day, and the mind um, tends to take over. Uh, uh, and you know, it's we're, we're all the same. It's it's it's. Uh, being able to, but knowing what your end goal is and being passionate about what that is, uh, sort of re-identifying what your end goal is. Like, you know, I'm also a, an amateur woodworker and there's, there's, a, there's a famous uh, saying uh, among, amongst woodworkers, he who dies with the most toys wins. But when you start to think about that, he who dies with the most successful performances wins. It just seems like that is not really what it's all about. I Yeah, I love to be congratulated on implementing a beautiful performance. I, I, I do. Uh, and, and all of us do. And yet, those of us who are able to continue on and and do it day to day to day, realize that with every great performance, there's going to be one that's not so great, and that one that you're going to be disappointed in what you've done, and you need to be able to understand that um, that is not the end goal. Uh, uh, the result of your actions is not the end goal. Even though in music, it seems like it should be, because you've got this beautiful thing that you're creating, that's in a way a byproduct of what the true goal is, which is to be able to um, understand yourself and understand what's behind the veil. Mm -hmm. And uh, ironically, what happens is once, at least from what I've learned about myself, as I said, in the very first stages of that, um, is that my playing and my performance gets a lot better the more that I'm able to be calm and understand um, understand uh, the core strength of who I am behind all of the chatter of, oh, that was great. Oh, that wasn't so good. Oh, that was great. Fantastic job. Oh, you know, th those kind of things can be so distracting and so overwhelming um, when uh, there's it, they don't there's no real. Uh, end to that at all there's no real purpose and that answers my next question of that one time you are a millisecond off yeah but you have a few other milliseconds coming up yes and that is going to live in your head right through everything it how does. do you just say you know what let's move that back and and do that you know when when you're this is a uh something that folks might might not 
have had an experience with, um, we've all probably had this experience where something goes wrong. Um, and for us, a giant uh, failure only happens once every couple of months. But it literally feels to me uh, like uh, a giant black chasm opens up in front of me on stage and I'm peering into it and literally ready to fall in. So that's, I guess if you describe it that way, it's a little hard to recover from. Yes, that yeah. sounds horrifying. It's, it, 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 it is. <laughs> and, you know, you probably have to play something difficult right after that. Um, a lot of it just comes with practice. A lot of it comes with knowing that it's going to be uh, time goes on and you're going to have more opportunities You'll beat yourself up a little bit, as we all do. We all have egos. We we all uh, we all are at the mercy of the words that we create in our mind. But the more you practice not being in that mode, the more you have the ability to forgive yourself, for lack of a better word, yeah. and move into a place which is, why am I really doing this? We have to... In order to be happy in, in a job like mine where you, you're confronted 24-7 with failure, it's always right in front of your face. Which is, it goes back to the you are not your mind. Exactly. Right? And I feel like that's part of the, the forgiving yourself and self-love and whatever, you know, you want to call it self-care to and exactly. all that stuff is you are not your mind. And everything in this world is going to tell you that you are your mind. So... Everyone, you know, will walk out on that street, and it will be. Um, it you'll be. It's it's a full frontal assault. <laughs> you constant. You can't, and it's so easy to live in that in that place. But you're gonna have. To, if you do, you're gonna have to accept the consequences. And um, from my experience, the consequences of living only in the mind are euphoric, but they can also be devastating. So I'm ready now after a long time, maybe I'm more stupid than most, to move to a place where I'm not just um, like a leaf on the wind being blown hither and yon by what what my mind is saying. So it's been a, it's been a fascinating journey and um, uh, one that uh, I'm you know, super psyched about the what's going to happen next. So it's a it's been a wonderful journey. Absolutely right. Um, it's been a long journey. Mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, um, when I think of journeymen, mm. someone who walks the Appalachia Trail every mm. year or something like that, what advice do you have for people where they want to start this type of journey? Mm. Um, because I always feel, and it, this could start at any time. Yes. Right. It's important to note that, you know, you don't have to be 30 years old to start this journey. No. You could be 60. You could be 70. Mm -hmm. um, one of my favorite things is the best time is 30 years ago. The second best time is now. <laughs> and so how do you really how do you start to explore that? And, you know, for some people, it may take 18 years to find the right book at the right time yeah. and do whatever. What can people do? Well, um, I. You, you certainly don't want anyone to have a crisis to have to open up the world of self-discovery. But unfortunately for most humans, uh, we're too dumb, especially once we've started to identify with the mind. We're, we're too dumb to um, 
to to make any sort of change. It's it's yeah. just too intoxicating. The the victories are amazing when you when you get that job that you've always wanted or you you get that you get to go out with that person that you've always wanted to date or you get to go to a you know all all the victories are so amazing. It's it's so easy to get identified with that um knowing that you want something better than that is a hard pill to swallow but I think a lot of people um, could understand that with the euphoria of the victories of the mind comes some of the pain, too. And knowing we just have to know that there's something beyond that dichotomy. There's something beyond. So to accept, well, there's a problem. We have to accept, first of all, there's a problem. Now, if you're not willing to accept that dichotomy of soul and mind, then you're not, you're going to be like I was and just keep identifying with it, with all the the joys and the pain that are uh, that are involved with that. Um, or you can uh, accept that there is maybe something beyond that, and then just start to explore, like you did when you were four years old, or when you were thirteen, or when you were twenty five. Start to explore. Get a get a a good book. There's a, there are um, multiple great books on how to start to see what's beyond uh, the words that you're saying in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a big push these days. M- meditation uh, is such a buzzword, and so many people are uh, enjoying the benefits of uh, self-discovery through meditation. Um, you meditate? I do. How often? Multiple times a day. Um so if we define it as sitting on the floor uh, with, uh, with, with no distractions, just seeing what happens every other day. If we talk about walking outside of my apartment and walking to the subway and um, focusing on not letting the words happen, but um, just being there and walking, that's every day, multiple times. Sitting in the chair at work and focusing in a meditative way, hundreds of times a day. So I would say, uh, by standard definition, which is the most powerful to me, is just sitting with no distraction. Mm-hmm. That's the mm-hmm. one that really brings, and I'm I'm an infant in that. But the other, I'm much more practiced in, uh, uh, and uh, it's it. I I would say that it is my passion now to be constantly in. Uh, constantly involved with um, trying to figure out how to be, for lack of a better word, and this is a mind word, but how to be better, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how to push it further, how to be better. And again, ironically, what hap- what has happened in my life since I've started this has been an explosion of opportunity, such like I've never experienced in my life before, an explosion of things that well beyond anything that I've tried to create um, in my own sort of uh, minimal ability to, to do things out there. So that's been... It's, been it's not really minimal, cool. my friend. <laughs> it's kind of, So here's what I'm most excited about. So um, we're going to talk about how people can see you perform, and we're going to like plug the, the fill and everything. But what I'm really excited about is when I go, 
Philharmonic is one of my favorite things to do in the city, awesome. just because it's just a peaceful place to be, it and is. it's nice, and it's just it's it's part glamour, part uh, beauty, and it's just a wonderful power. You know, you're not power, yes. yes, yes. And whenever you go into a place, you know, um, you you take a look at the stage mm-hmm. and the lights. And you think about the people who put it all together. Any concert I go to, you take it like, wow, look at all the, the lights and the set, all the speakers lined up and all kinds of stuff. Uh, but now you get to take a look at a group of people and you get to play the game in your head while you're listening is what's going through their head yeah, as well, exactly. which is kind of fun to, uh, fun to do. Yeah, exactly. So tell us, um, as, we, as we wrap up, tell us, plug the fill, mm-hmm. plug everything that, that you can about that. Okay. Uh, well, obviously, I... I'm a huge fan of the experience of listening to orchestral music. Um, And at the Phil, we've got 110 people who are engaged. I can't even put a number on it. They're engaged, let's just say, 200% in terms of what they want to convey to the audience. So it is our passion... Uh, passion is not even a strong enough word to describe the feeling that we have for the music that we're creating together on stage. So the idea of you get 110 people pursuing passion at 200% capability, and then you get all of those people doing that at exactly the same moment and recreating these works of genius, these people who have seen how to put something on a page and make an experience recreatable. That's what we do with our precision and our passion is to make all that flower right in front of you. So I would say come and see us um, with that in mind. Just watch one person and how they dig into the cello or how you know a horn player pushes into uh, some sort of line. Or um, It's really it's really visceral when, yeah. when you get there. I'm sure you know most everybody has felt that. And um, come see us. Uh, what can improve your experience exponentially is listen to one of the pieces on the program one time through before you come, um, even if it's just in the background, mm-hmm. so that you kind of have a little bit of interface with it before you sit down. It will make the experience. Classical music is one of those amazing things like, you know, Great music is great music, but classical music um, is something that it's great the first time, it's great the tenth time, it's great the thousandth time. So it it actually gets better in a way. First time it's like whoa, and then the thousandth time it's like wow, I'm really I really learned something about that and. That's I do beautiful. feel like it gets, especially with just the anticipation of what you know is coming, yeah. and you could say, "I'm looking forward to this, and I can't wait for this part." And you get to explore totally. different different aspects. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, we always wrap up with a book recommendation. Okay, I imagine it's going to be well. It's for me. I mean, the most uh, the most powerful book I ever read, Eckhart Tolle, um, "A New Earth." Um, it's you read it and you think, "Wow, that guy interviewed me for this book," and yet. He didn't because yeah. he's talking literally about my experience in life. And not only that, but he's talking about it in a way that I had no idea was actually happening. So all of a sudden, your life is completely revealed in front of you. It's a, it's such a gas to read that book. I've read it like five times, nice. ten times. 
um, I would say just, you know, read it, be open. And it's going to be something that you can't even imagine what's going to happen when you read it. It's really cool. I think that's awesome. Yeah. My final question for you, who's yes, your favorite sir. composer? Oh, man. Uh, I'm glad you asked. Uh, I love, you know, I was thinking about that um, earlier. I, I love all music. Uh, uh, there's, there's good music. There's great music. All music is good in some way. Um, I would say for classical composers, it's um, Anton Bruckner, symphonist from the late 19th century. He's Austrian, combines emotion, form, and content uh, better than anybody else. Maybe Bach. Maybe Bach is better, but I, my favorite is Bruckner because the French horn parts are really good also. Um, Fair enough. And then, but I love, I love, um, I love Led Zeppelin, and I love power ballads from the 80s. I was just listening listening to some Brian Adams and uh, nice. Night, Night Ranger this morning. All so, right, uh, all right. I, I, good music is good music, and, um, you know, we do a lot of it at, at the Phil, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, an honor to be I think to I would love to see the Phil do some 80s covers, right? Maybe I, a little Warrant. We, we did it in Atlanta all the time, and I am pushing for it here. <laughs> the Phil is a, is a serious organization. Um, we, we're, you know what we're doing that's really cool now is um, we're playing soundtracks to of, uh, uh, projections of films. Nice. For like a week in a row, we'll do two years ago. This was, the, this was literally the pinnacle of my career. We did episodes four five, six, and seven of Star Wars nice. in two weeks. Like the original score that John Williams had recreated. And, I mean, it was... I I can't put into words how incredible that was. Um, that has so to be the coolest. It, it yeah. Literally. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. All right, well, this has been... Uh, it's fantastic. Thanks. I love it. I know a lot of people are going to benefit from this because we all operate... Um, maybe not on the stage of the New York Philharmonic, but we are always on display. We are always doing something, whatever kind of career path we have. There is a time to execute, and we all have that inner dialogue going. We all have those particular challenges, and I love this idea of pairing learning and achievement, the idea of being open and just being present enough to recognize when a door is opening so you can have that opportunity. Um, so, Richard, thank you so much for being it's been here. my pleasure, Jim. Thank you. Uh, everyone, uh, more information on the Philharmonic, I will put that on the website, bellwetherhub.com, and you will be seeing me at the Philharmonic. I will be not performing, but I go there uh, to watch, um, and I encourage everyone else to do that as well. So thank you, Richard. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will be seeing you out there. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Now, do something for yourself. Bellwether is much more than just a podcast. Join us at bellwetherhub.com, where you can read riveting articles, view upcoming events, and connect with other interesting people. I look forward to seeing you out there soon. Bellwether.